Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Chambaugh, welcoming you to the May 28, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. It's time, really, folks. Climate damage expresses our situation better than climate change, don't you think? We could ask any public facilities manager in the tornado-slammed, flood-inundated western Midwestern states. Last week, I met another Water District board member who expressed climate skepticism. What is in the water? Today, we'll mind meeting in what the college admission scandals have unearthed with Vice Provost of Academic Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and History Professor Doug Haynes. How his charter within the UC system handles the inequities of education in the broadest possible sense. In the second segment, pharmacology professor and director of UCI Center for the Study of Cannabis, Danielle Piomelli, will post us on the Fine Minds Coming Together March 31st, end of this week, at the Cove at Applied Innovations Workshop, covering the complexity of cannabis and driving, as well as any progress that we can pry out of Danielle about the center. We'll be right back after a really short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest, and it's such a pleasure to have him on, is Professor Doug Haynes, UCI Vice Provost for Academic Equity, Director of Diversity and Inclusion, and UCI Advanced Program, and History Professor at the School of the Humanities. Doug has recently hosted locally a series entitled Perspectives on Bias, Prejudice, and Bigotry, Tarana Burke, founder and leader still of Hashtag Me Too, was one of his featured A-list guests in this series. Doug's academic pursuits focus on modern Britain, medicine and science in Europe and the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. His research also interrogates how the British past figures in the cultural landscape of the United States, ranging from television programming, historical fiction, to higher education. Doug Haynes completed his Bachelor's of Arts at Pomona College and his Ph.D. at UC Berkeley. He joins me in studio today. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Doug Haynes. Thank you, Claudia, for having me. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on the graduation of one of your own in the UC system this spring, Doug. It is very gratifying to be able to be there later, we're actually in June, to watch my daughter walk across the stage and collect <laughs> that valuable piece of paper that will be delivered by mail. <laughs> that, that we'll talk about. And that paper matters a great deal. So we've got much to cover. Obvious directions are reparations, especially those being considered in higher education. I'll be taking that up in later interviews. Today, the focus is on one institutional response, general and specific, more the ethical than the legal, amidst the unfolding cluster flack of <laughs> the college admission scandal. So first, Doug, what was your, the think, think back, roll back several months, what was your initial reaction when the college admission scandal was breaking? You know, that 
admission scandal known as VAR, uh, that was formed part of a, the Varsity Blues investigation by the Justice Department. Um, it stunned me, my initial reaction. And what stunned me the most was the uh, uh, essential exchange play-to-play that parents are alleged to have um, paid to have their child admitted to a college without being qualified. Um, And I think I was stunned because even as I think about my own kids going to college, or for that matter, the thousands of students who apply to UC, it's a far more rigorous, uh, transparent process. And so I was uh, not just stunned, but a bit angry as well. Uh, because the actions that are alleged of this very small subset of Americans uh, contributes to a climate of more anxiety and, in some cases, distrust about our public institutions. And that is where you, there was in the New York Times, that interviewed you, mm-hmm. and the only part that made it in the article was that you were concerned about the integrity of the process. There was like sort of, it's the expected kind of circle the wagons around and defend the institution. But you said much more to the New York Times reporter than yeah. that one line they gave you. Yeah, and, and part of it is, is that uh, we all know that uh, college education is so important for upward mobility for many, many people. That's been one of the hallmarks of higher education in the United States. And I think that one concern that has derived from its important is that we have a fair system, particularly when so many more people who are applying are first in their family or a low income or otherwise underrepresented. And so it's very important that we have a system that we can trust and rely on because in some cases, this is their only shot for upward mobility in the United States. And so this scandal trained a great deal of attention on our processes. Are our processes fair? And I'm happy to report that we do have a very robust system of accountability. We being UCI. You're speaking for UCI. UCI, but also the University of California system in general, because we have multiple layers of accountability spanning from the state legislature of California to the regents of the University of California to our faculty senate that plays a very important role in setting standards and provides a form of quality control. And more than that, I think we have the benefit of thousands of applicants who communicate their experience uh, about applying to UC. And so on the one hand, I feel very confident that the University of California really represents, I think, the, the gold standard when it comes to the admissions process. At the same time, I feel that the nakedness of this scandal has clearly raised doubts in the minds of many people about accessing higher education in the United States. And that doubts, they've been planted for a while. I w- I'll go back to um, some of the like where earlier stages where this might be averted. But speaking at this juncture, we there's so much discussion about imposter syndrome. Does that student belong there when they're looking 
laterally and they're looking at their friend that's got all that money they can blow through or they can see the the friend's parents name on a building so the imposter syndrome could kick in even earlier though when they're watching this like you said the play to play kind of dynamic where oh you got to be a member of this club to be a part of a uc system and and yes and i think that that's one uh, adverse effect of this varsity blues scandal is that it might enable people to think that maybe higher education isn't for them. And I think that one thing that UCI has done, um, and it's really baked into our strategic plan, is that we want to be first in class. And what that means is we want to relentlessly uh, reach out to encourage and support a broad cross-section of individuals to apply for admissions to the University of California, Irvine. And that means starting very early with our Center for Educational Partnership and working with parents, uh, local school districts, to raise awareness about uh, what's required to go to college, but also literally bringing people to campus, right, who may not otherwise have that experience while they're in high school or in middle school. So let's roll it back then. We're talking about where the earliest die, the equity die is cast, where the ideas are planned. There's a, there's a culture of using higher education, but there's, you and I know, we could see the inequities where checks are being cut to foundations that are school site specific, school district specific, Mm -hmm. and all the enrichment checks the parents cut right here in IUSD, Irvine Unified School District, those enrichment checks that are cut to shore up every possible subject in that child's academic stretch. And when I have Daniel Watt in here, who does outreach for underrepresented minorities in STEM fields, mm-hmm. you know, she's she's working on making up the difference of all of those other households, privileged households in Richmond. She's making it up in three hours down the hill on the April 27 form. And my listeners have heard us talk, Daniel was talking about that, and mm-hmm. they've heard me go back to that. So let's talk about the equity die. It's cast so early. You right. talked about baking in certain provisions and assurances here, but this is happening so much earlier. Right. What do you as a member of a university administration right. feel about that, well, do about that? First and foremost, I think regardless of where a person might be on the landscape, the ideological landscape about access, there's no dispute that family, education, and income is a very powerful predictor of participation in higher education, right? Right. That's incredibly important. And in part because of what's known as the cultural capital. That is to say, those assets that could be education, that could be your ability to read broadly, uh, your experiencing travel. These are assets that ultimately enable a person to be mobile in uh, in our social system. Mobile so, and physically and in their intellectually exactly. mobile. And in their relationships with like-minded people. It allows them to bond with people with a common interest. And so I think that's fair to say that family income and education is a very powerful uh, predictor of participation. What the UCI has done in establishing first-in-class as its pillar of a strategic plan is to dedicate an extensive amount of attention and resources, human and otherwise, to reach out 
to the broadest community possible. That How early? And, uh, and, and K could, through 12. Already. Okay, so right. that is happening. Yeah, because in some sense, in order to sort of not make up the difference, but to interrupt the differences, it's important to make it really clear early on in the life of a child and their family that university is possible, that you demystify it, and that can include bringing them to campus for enrichment activities. It like all, like Daniel did exactly with her it was that that was K excuse me that was six through twelve right. right and for example providing them with role models that people like you are here and they're here to educate to do research and to serve the community and on top of that it it can't stop with K through twelve it also involves working with teachers in local under resourced school districts right right uh, to sort of uh, to work together in terms of sharing knowledge about some of the uh, research that's available to them. And then on top of that, it's so important to equip both students and parents about understanding the process of applying to UC, which requires some effort because all the responsibility rests on that student and the parent. And so through a combination of raising awareness, providing role models, as well as resources to understand how to do something, how to apply, what are the financial resources that are available. And that's something we do th- 365 days a year wow. because there's, that's our talent pool. So some recent data points that I got that make this challenge even more steep is that a retired educator in a largely Hispanic, Latino, Chicano demographic high school Mm -hmm. that she dealt with the challenge of the home that was undermining those the college application process they didn't want their kids to go all the way from Santa Ana to UC Davis Mm -hmm. they didn't want their child to go all the way to Harvard so that was there's not a matter of gaming admission that I mean they legit were admitted but it's you're talking about getting the teachers on board they're on board but there's subcultures like you're talking about that Mm -hmm. they don't see that academic asset for their child and that makes your job even harder it it, it makes it harder it makes it challenging but it also creates opportunities because it means that we have to think more but more importantly we have to engage we have to reach out because in some cases it could be about a question of costs how much does it cost it's near they were saying it's they just want to be near they don't that that cultural thing about family stays together right and in part the notion of family units staying together Embedded in that is the idea that a child may be contributing financially to the family, providing daycare right. services. And so it's very important to sort of describe the suite of resources that are available to a student once they get there, at a minimum to mitigate some of the anxieties and concerns that the family has. Right, And so that's why we bring families to campus so they can actually see and we also have the, um, the spending the night on campus to okay. allow parents to see what it's like to live in a dorm. Everything. And any, every incremental step here. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Doug Haynes, UCI Vice Provost for Academic Equity, Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Director of UCI Advanced Program and History Professor, talking about 
equitable access of students going into higher ed, especially in the UC system. Access into and retention, we're going to get to that as well. So, I mean, your background is in history, Mm -hmm. the theory of of history, Mm -hmm. and colonial history, Mm -hmm. and all of those things. And you've had sort of like really bone up on the theory of of admissions Mm -hmm. and uh, the psychology of admissions and retention and all that. What Talk about how you're dealing, how you bring that into your portfolio. That's a tall order, Doug. And I appreciate that question. I think for me, what drives my academic career together with my administrative role is the function of the university to maximize human potential. And that animates not only what I do as a faculty member, as a teacher, as an advisor and mentor to students, but also my role as an administrator. Because to the extent that we can diversify our student body, we can redefine what we mean by excellence. And we can do that because our talent pool is in society. And the real opportunity and task for the university is to connect it with this terrific student experience here at UCI. And so all of my academic training is brought to bear in understanding who our students are, how are they doing, how do we know if they're improve, uh, uh, succeeding, and w- how can we improve as, an, as a campus? And those four questions really drive my thinking as a faculty member in the classroom as much as it drives my thinking as an administrator. So we have now before us the proposition of changing the standardized test Mm -hmm. to consider social economic factors. So what kind of brain trust has been involved in putting that together? What were your contributions to that? What do you think it's, it's actually going to well, do? I, I think it's, a, it's an example of the college board growing and changing. Uh, the adversity index is something that they adopted. This is the first full year. They're okay. piloting it. And the adversity index really provides a separate score from the SAT score. And it measures the economic and social challenges that a individual has had to cope with. And it's not based on the personal information of the student taking the SAT. It's rather aggregated information, uh, census records about the characteristics of their neighborhood. And so in some sense, what they're trying to do is provide another layer of understanding it's clear what that sort of goal is. And there were some really interesting examples, actually, in the LA Times editorial or some articles where there were two comparable guys in their disposition toward admissions, but that one of them had clear advantages, but demographically, he had similar disadvantages, but the advantages really were not picked up in that. So it's such a fine-tuning right. consideration. I just didn't know uh, what if you had maybe a, a, a different approach that you w- would like to see while this pilot program is underway. Well, at this point, I, I want to see the results okay. of this first iteration. But you know, what I think the College Board is doing, again, is changing. 
it now it has for the past at least 10 years recognized that the standardized test is not a very strong predictor of student success. They admit that it's on their website. Members of their board acknowledge Right, right. And I think that's progress. Good. They also have recognized even earlier that the standardized tests can uh, reinforce differential opportunities for the test takers. Right. Uh, Right. And so that's one reason why they got rid of the analogy segment of the SAT. I think Which that, is hugely biased culturally. Well, yeah, it depends on those cultural assets right or the, the cultural uh, capital. I think that what they're trying to do is really to adopt practices that many institutions of higher education already use, and that's the notion of holistic review. And that is to look at the whole individual, right, so that we understand not only their aspirations— but also the context from which those aspirations were enabled, right? And so that means that we want to know about their leadership opportunities they took advantage of. To what extent did they have to work, care for a loved one, as well as their performance on their uh, standardized tests and their course sequence. So what kinds of conversations are you picking up on around campus as people are digesting this play-to-play gaming of the admissions, any any productive inroads that you're hearing? That oh, I, I think we maybe we can uh, we're going to see through this. Well, I, I hadn't thought of something I, this way, but I, you ever heard it? I think at this point, um, most of the conversations I had is just surprise. Okay, that it was so blatant. Well, some people. When Davin Phoenix was here, uh-huh. we we sort of had a little cheap chuckle about whew, that. UCI dodged the bullet that UCLA did not. So, yeah. and, and I think in some sense, I mean, when you look at any kind of scandal like this, whether it's at Yale, it's at Stanford or UCLA or wherever um, these institutions that have been implicated are, I think it really comes down essentially to the culture. And I think that one thing that I think is particularly gratifying about UCI is that you have dedicated professionals who are committed to inclusive excellence. And that, uh, that commitment means that they abide by our important rules and our accountability structures, while at the same time working very hard to recruit and mobilize a talent pool that's very diverse. And so I think in some sense, it's not that we dodged a bullet. I would say that our processes are working. Just to give you an example. Working, and that's why you're saying people were generally maybe homogeneously surprised. Right. Like, this isn't the way we've been doing business. Right. So how could this be right. going? So back to your, uh, yeah. your example I, I and point. Mean, when you look at UCI, what so staggers me is that when I joined the faculty in 1992, we admitted something like 50% of applicants. Right. Um, this year, the admit rate was about 21%. Okay, right? selection. Well, it's, it's become a very selective campus, but yep. I also want to point something out that's so important for everyone to understand. We are a very diverse campus. What's mind-blowing to me is that 52% of our entering students are first in their family. Now, let that settle in for yep. a moment. Yeah, that is really we remarkable. We enroll more first-generation students at UCI than all of the eight Ivy League sco- uh, schools combined. That is a staggering achievement. And in addition, 
we not only are admitting a high percentage of first-generation students, but 40% are Pell eligible, which is a proxy for being low uh, Well, that lasts. Low still, it's still there. Right? right, right. And I'd just like to draw a line here as we're drawing down the time here, hmm. is that while this diversity, is this culture, is being codified on this campus, this is a very popular campus to be applying at. So it's got to be a feature that's the, a draw among many draws you have to offer. I, I think it certainly contributes to it. Uh, and just one final factoid, about 32% of our entering students who are California residents, right? And all of my statistics refer to California residents are from underrepresented minority backgrounds. Latino, Latina, African American, and Native American, and that, to be fair, is that's by the time they maybe have finished community college to apply by their junior these are, year. These so it are, could be the end of the, the these, line. These are all first, freshmen. First oh, they're year, freshmen. Okay, right? well, that's important About distinction five, to make. Five thousand of our freshmen are California uh, residents. So it'll go even higher then by the time you're well, well, getting to junior senior years. Exactly, and so I, I think that the campus's commitment to inclusive excellence is reflective of the selectivity, 21%, yield, 34% or so of students, California residents, come. And then more than that, the diversity uh, of the student population. And I, I think that's a powerful endorsement of the campus commitment to inclusive excellence. But I want to say something that's yes. equally important. It's not enough to admit students. Right, and that's like a whole next program that if you are only here for an hour, we sure. got we got another segment. But but the 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 job is to keep to retain the students, and that I mean I don't want to cut it short shrift. But if you want to sort of conclude with your best long essay answered all that, the the <laughs> shorthand is this: yes, that part of inclusive excellence involves collectivizing the cultural capital of the university and making it available to our students so that they can grow, succeed, and graduate, but not just graduate, go out into the world and make a difference because they changed while they were at UCI. They fulfilled or imagined their best self and we helped them become their best self as a young person. That is a shorthand for a much bigger lift that I hope you would consider taking up at a later date on uh, Ask a Leader. Can you do that for us, Doug? I'm very happy to do that, Claudia. Thank okay. you. Thank you. So I'm going to say thank you to Doug Haynes. He's the uh, UCI Provost for Academic Equity Director of Diversity and Inclusion and history professor talking about equitable access and we hope we can take up equitable retention here at UCI at a later date. Thanks again, Doug. We'll be right back with Professor Daniel Piomelli. He's the director of UCI Center for the State of Cannabis about a special workshop this Friday. Don't go away.
Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Dr. Danielle Piomelli, neuropharmacologist and director of UCI's Center for the Study of Cannabis. And he's here to talk about a special workshop at the Cove with presentations by an international expert, among other many, many things. We'll talk about that after we get a first a chance to look at the the center, what's going on here. Complex problems are what, what we go and dwell on with Daniel Pimelli. His work is in UCI Neurobiology Anatomy, and he's professor of the, the Louise Turner Arnold Chair in Neurosciences with joint appointments in the School of Medicine's Chemistry and Pharmacology. He's also the director of the UCI Department of Pharmacology National Institute on Drug Abuse, and he has a training grant center for the drug discovery. Among his 20 years, actually, we're going to have to add to that some more years, his 20 years of publications, plus his focus is exemplified in the title, The Molecular Logic of Endo cannabinoid signaling. We'll talk a little bit about those cannabinoids here in a bit. His most recent and substantial grants include the Lipid Biosignatures of Drug Addiction, Optimization and Preclinical Development of FAAH Inhibitors of Smoking Cessation, a novel treatment of chronic pain. He completed his pharmacy doctorate at the University of Naples in Italy and his PhD in pharmacology at Columbia University and has been studying and publishing about cannabinoids for well over, I think it's going to be 28 years. It's good to have you back today. Welcome back to Ask Leader, Dr. Daniel Piomelli. Thank you. Nice to be here again. Well, thank you. And he's joining me in studio. I hasten to say, so how's building your Center for Study of Cannabis going? Pretty well. Thanks for asking. The, uh, the center took off, I think, fairly well uh, last year with uh, a, f- a substantial grant from the federal government, from a federal um, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, to study the impact of cannabinoids on uh, um, adolescents mostly. And uh, very recently we had, I, I think, a very important success. We um, pulled together a series of investigators here on campus who are interested in uh, substance, psychoactive substance use. and. Uh, created uh, and proposed, actually, um, an organized research unit to study uh, substance use um, and its implications, uh, both um, scientific and societal implications. And very recently, the uh, university has, uh, the Office of the of, uh, of Research um, has approved our application, and so now we have this uh, new um, academic institution, which reflects, I think, the uh, uh, not, not only the support from the university, which of course we're very grateful for, but also the uh, interest that this uh, whole area of research is uh, is gaining in the, the last several years around cannabis, but also beyond cannabis in other with other substances that are used by people to alter their state of mind. Oh, okay. So that's included. So you're getting a good deal of uh, research published that I'm just going to blast through some uh, sort of summarize in the shorthand. Withdrawal and dependence, effects of vaporized cannabis, reduction of drug abuse with uh, methamphetamine type uh, drugs, use during pregnancy, treatment for epilepsy, sex differences in reaction to it, and uh, anti-anxiety treatment, to name a few, and you have the impact of cannabis across the lifespan. I think I heard one of those at a at the Bruise and Brains, where talking about, and, and it's so complex, so oh, all the factors. I, I was uh, raising some, some, I thought, man, you got 
I mean, those mice, you, you got them doing certain things, but they, the mice have to have more things to mimic what this, the whole cannabis impacts are. So, And I just want to know, just when you said looking into other substances, does the Denver legalization of possessing psilocybin, does it complicate the already methodical pace at which your researchers are moving along to understand the effects of cannabis? No, it does not complicate it. But what it does, it highlights that uh, people since the beginning of time have a very strong pulsion toward using psychoactive medicines, psychoactive uh, substances that alter, you know, their their mindset, their state of mind. And um, I think we are in a point in our society that instead of simply uh, denying the existence of this phenomenon, we're trying to understand it and control it to the extent that is possible so to reduce uh, risk and uh, and increase benefits. So... Now on to the workshop. I know that that was cutting the short shrift with the center, but um, so the workshop, it's one reason why you're here, the main reason. You're presenting this Friday, and the title is Cannabis and Driving, Untangling a Complex Problem. And Dr. Marilyn Hustis, she's internationally known for her work on the impact of cannabis use while driving, and she's going to examine mechanisms of action of cannabinoid agonists and antagonist effects of uh, in utero drug exposure and the neurobiology of pharmacokinetics of novel psychoactive substances. So this is what she's going to, she'll talk about the um, actual, the, the driving as a complex problem. So how complex is this problem? And is this one of the problems that is really sort of that the center is trying to really unravel at a as rapid a rate as possible so people understand some of the the downside of legalization of cannabis right so how complex the problem is it pre, at first it seems like a very simple no it doesn't issue. seem not at all well to some maybe because i think everybody starting with cannabis users everybody appreciates and understands that uh, uh, using and driving don't really uh, go together very well. And, you know, as I said, the users are the first ones to understand that that's the reason why they typically, people under the influence drive more slowly, they're more careful, and as they are passing other cars. So there is that consciousness, that uh, sense of uh, recognition of the uh, of the difficulty of driving while under the influence of cannabis. The main problem is not so much that. The main problem is how we objectively tell if somebody is under the influence of cannabis or not. And just to put things in context, cannabis is not the only thing, of course, that affects driving. Alcohol is the primary thing that affects driving, the primary and substance. And the phone, the cell phone distractions. Cell phones, uh, talking, but, you know, remaining in the field of pharmacology. Right, right, but I'm a saying lot it's of, com- uh, complex. Yeah, a lot of uh, drugs, that uh, prescription drugs, uh, have the same, the same ability and they don't get as much uh, attention as cannabis does. Okay. But so how do we tell the cannabis that somebody is really under the influence of cannabis. That is something that really co- presents a s- substantial problem. And when we see the sign now hanging over the freeway, it says buzz driving is drunk driving. Is bu- Buzz is a state of mind that could be dealing with any substance. It's not taking a, it's not saying anything about cannabis specifically. No, it, it, it does not. So let, let me just... Again, let's look back and see what is actually done right now. Right now, the state of California 
and other states have different regulations. But the state of California has, I think, a very rational way of addressing the problem. They have behaviorally trained uh, law enforcement officers. Uh, It's a small group of them, a few hundreds. uh, They're called DREs. And these individuals are trained to recognize, you know, using psychological slash behavioral tests, if a person is able or unable. What does DRE stand for? Drug drug recognition uh, something. Oh, okay. All right. So recognizing whether an individual is under the uh, influence of cannabis or not. And it works fairly well, but the fact is there are several limitations to it. And the main one is, of course, that if a human tests another human, uh, no matter how trained and how much a person wants to be objective, the performance will always be subjected to biases. And biases is actually a real risk in this case because a lot of um, folks who... Who you know who use cannabis come from underrepresented minorities, underprivileged groups that typically attract a lot of bias issues. So I, I think it would be really important to have objective measures, but this turns out to be extremely hard. And the reason is because cannabis is not at all like, say, alcohol. With alcohol, right. which has been illegal drugs in, for ni- the last eighty years since the stop of uh, of prohibition in the nineteen thirties. Alcohol, we know very well that uh, for a given uh, amount of consumption, uh, the individual will have a given concentration, a given level of Of alcohol in the blood. And to that particular level corresponds a given level of impairment. So we have millions, literally millions of data points on this, and that's very, very useful. The situation is completely different for cannabis because the active principle of cannabis, which is THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, does not behave like alcohol at all. In fact, uh, you can have very high levels of THC in your system and be not impaired at Really? All. Not at all? Not at all. And you can have very, very low levels and be completely impaired. And this is a very technical discussion, but there are many reasons why this is the case. Now, for law enforcement and and also for our legislators, alcohol is a very, very important precedent, but it's also a precedent that is very that is taking too much of their attention. They are anchoring everything to alcohol. And the fact that alcohol behaves so differently from THC in cannabis makes it a bad precedent. So we cannot use alcohol. We have to dispense with precedent. it entirely. We have Throw to it do, out. Yes. For example, uh, you know, there is this uh, concept of uh, the per se limit, which is the uh, an amount of THC in blood, which is considered per se, uh, as being problematic for driving. For example, in the state of Colorado, is five nanograms per milliliter liter, which is not a whole lot, but it's a fairly substantial amount of THC in blood. So the, the issue is, is that significant? That doesn't mean anything. Um, it, and it doesn't, because let's say a person who is uh, uh, using cannabis for medicinal purposes, for you know legal medicinal purposes, and cannabis is legal for me- as a medicine in about 30 states of the Union, so the majority of the states. Let's say somebody's using cannabis for legal purposes and uh, uses it for a couple of months, by the time, uh, after about three, two, three months, the, the levels of cannabis in her or his blood will be, you know, elevated, pr- pretty, pretty substantial, okay. right? But those to those levels, there will be there will correspond no impairment at all because the system, the cannabinoid system, which is where THC in cannabis works, has adapted to this and so has lowered 
the number of receptors, change things around so that the organism now is habituated and does no longer respond. That individual is perfectly capable of driving. On the other hand, a person with, uh, uh, you know, with very, very low levels, uh, maybe even less than 5 nanograms, could still have fairly high levels of THC in her or his brain. And he or she would be fairly, fairly impaired. So this complexity is really hard to tackle. And that's why we thought as a center that it would be really important to have experts come to UCI and give us the latest in science on this topic and also bring in law enforcement, bring lawyers, bring you know companies that work in this area trying to stir up the conversation about this to go beyond the ethanol alcohol example. So if I could really boil this all the way down, the essential differences are you can, with alcohol, you can measure impairment using the blood indicators. When you're measuring cannabinoid, you are looking at brain activity, which is a whole different realm to test absolutely so that's the whole difference so it's there's so different that's all it is with alcohol you can measure breath you can measure blood you can measure you can measure saliva you can measure urine and those are accessible but and the brain are, is not accessible to anybody testing on the roadside do not work for for cannabis for thc at all so it's a whole paradigm different. so is that part of the training then that people get that that first lesson the, the training is you know is well done basically the training is looking at behavior and so behavior reflects the activity of the brain so if there is THC in the brain the behavior will manifest itself yeah so a, a well-trained DRE officer will you know be able to spot impairment the problem is that there are only about a few hundreds of them on the field and let's not forget we are humans we have biases and those things are really really important even if we do not recognize them biases yeah. are one of the things that we recognize where less good at recognizing. So that training's already going on as dealing with bias, as, as the accelerating police method is being replaced, hopefully, with decelerating kinds of methods. So I, let me, I'll put that aside. I just want to let any of you who are just tuning in right now, my guest is Dr. Danielle Piomelli, professor of anatomy and neurobiology and director of UCI Center for the Study of Cannabis. We're talking about the special workshop May 31st at the Cove with presentations by Marilyn Hustis, an internationally known expert on the impact of cannabis while driving. And Dr. Piomelli is breaking down why it's so difficult to assess impaired driving due to cannabis. So I guess I'm going to anticipate some people are listening and they're thinking, so there's the the THC activated and there's um, and the CBD uh, so they they have a different way of affecting driving correct totally different well we don't know much about CBD okay right? so mm, there are about 140 different cannabinoids in cannabis THC and CBD are two of the major ones okay wow uh, but there are at least another 138 and counting so you raise an important point because THC is the main substance in cannabis responsible for its so-called psychotropic effects, which means its ability to cause inebriation and intoxication. CBD has no such ability. THC, CBD can cause 
can reduce anxiety, can have effects that are antipsychotic, so it reduces psychotic events in schizophrenic patients. It can have anti-epileptic activity. So those are interesting pharmacological yes. uh, effects. The effects of CBD proper on driving are being assessed, but they are not fully understood. I do not expect that CBD per se will have any effect on driving because it causes really no no intoxication. It could affect the it could affect the working of THC because it. CBD and THC are somehow in opposition to one another in oh, some cases. Okay. So it is possible that, for example, cannabis products that contain a large amount of CBD and a smaller amount of THC will be less intoxicating than those that contain a, lo- a lot of THC and less CBD for the same quantity of THC. So it's important to uh, appreciate that these ratios in the plant could affect the overall activity of THC. Again, this is a speculation because we do not have real data on this. And that's, again, one reason why we have we are having this, uh, this symposium, this workshop on uh, May 31st at the Cove, because I think it's important to appreciate, again, the complexity of the problem. And, of course, we cannot be perfect, but I think we have to try and approximate our regulations, our guidelines should approximate what we understand scientifically. And that is really what the center is aiming at doing right now. So given these complexities you're talking about, you you must just, like, drop your jaw thinking about the kind of lack of sophistication at the retail arena. There's all this commentary getting dispensed by cannabis salesperson. They're in a position to be saying all kinds of things. And none of this is going on in the discussion, but people are thinking their cannabis retailer is a uh, an informed transactor. Yeah, we have that That's sort crazy. of instinctual position <laughs> that if, if we go to the butcher, we ask about a cut of meat, right? The fact is that they should be taken with a big crate, whatever is said uh, by the... Um, there should be a warning label over the front the door. The the tenders, right? The butt tenders yeah. should be taken with a grain of salt. Consider that there are data out there showing that 90% of individuals working in uh, in the industry, in the retail aspect of the industry, are very have no absolutely no... Uh, expertise, expertise, no, no, no training in any shape and forms. But ninety percent of them are also equally willing to give advice to uh, to their they customers. Are. So, oh. and you know, it's understandable. But I think that highlights the need to um, increase the training if we want this to be a sustainable business. So, back to now these complexities that will be talked about at the workshop this week. That Marilyn Hustis will be in a roundtable after she gives her keynote, and then there will be there's UCI faculty, there's defense attorneys and consumer advocates, and Katie Porter is going to be giving a, a special talk there. So, what is your targeted audience as we're starting to draw down in our time? And it looks like you can't reserve a spot anymore. That's closed down. But are you taking? Can you take any newcomers after they've heard this interview? Unfortunately not, because we had an ad, uh, an ad out for a couple of uh, months now, okay. and it required an RSVP. So at this point, right. we're, you know, we have no more space. But you're very excited. Katie Porter is coming. She will be probably addressing a related issue, not so much driving, but probably taxing. The tax of uh, taxing of well, that's uh, her area, the finance, yeah, right. That's her area, and it's also a very, very important area, of course. The roundtable will take questions from the audience, and we'll have 
several participants from UCSD as well as UCI, a faculty from each of these campuses, UCSD and UCI have been traditionally the two main campuses working on cannabis, UCSD from a clinical perspective, UCI from a preclinical or basic science perspective. So I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, our UCSD friends. We also have uh, folks from law enforcement, and we're very excited as well because their contribution is extremely important. Sometimes scientists can be biased, are biased by the fact that, you know, we work in the lab, we know what we know. We don't know what it's like out there, right? You know, well, that'd if be really interesting, and they'll yeah. they'll have questions the law enforcement for you, and you will with them. So that that meeting of the minds is going to be very interesting. And knowing what I know about any sort of academic workshop is there are more questions than there's time. So I don't imagine the live streamers are going to be able to pipe in their questions, but I know people will try. So they can get into the workshop in some shape or form. Well, we're looking forward to that. And I agree with you. Questions, there will be plenty. Answers will be many, many fewer. But hopefully we will steer a debate, a conversation that will bring us places. So this is a a very privileged opportunity I'm going to take with you is that the... If anybody, any in any part of that workshop can shorten their introduction to a speaker, that gives more time to hear the speaker, more time for questions. I just I listen to academics give introductions and they go on for like about six hours, mm-hmm. and then there's four minutes left to hear the talk and one minute for questions. So, <laughs> I, if I could put in that little uh, that wish uh, to be fulfilled, and ah. That's host privilege. So, Dr. Danielle Piomelli, it's so good to have you back on Ask Thank a Leader. You. And come back on when you've got more forms coming. We'll give uh, listeners more lead time so they know when they can uh, t- join in on uh, the forum themselves. Pleasure okay. to be okay. here. Thanks a lot. That was Dr. Danielle Piomelli, and he is the director for UCI Center for Study of Cannabis. And we're here to talk about getting everybody up to speed on May 31st's workshop on the complexities of cannabis and driving. And that's from 10 until 2. So my guest, I want to thank him again and taking the time today. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Certamente non volare, ma viaggiare. Sì, viaggiare.